This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider. The Road to 2030 project is an investment-led project designed to articulate possible visions of the future, the key drivers behind those outcomes, and to highlight areas of undiscounted change. We'll come to that in a moment. This is the first in a series of six special podcasts exploring the Road to 2030 project. With me now is Sahil Martani, who's an investment strategist at 91 in London, and he's joined by his colleague, portfolio manager Philip Saunders, at the same institution. Sahil, I'll start with with you. I can't even get my head around the first, as we speak, 27 days of January, let alone looking forward to 2030. So, Philip, maybe you could flesh out the ambitious nature of this project. Well, Lindsay, I mean, the project is ambitious in, in the sense that we're trying to create a sort of all-embracing framework to help us and also our clients understand the major thematic, structural thematic drivers that uh, are, are influencing markets on a sort of multi-year basis but the basic idea is just that it's quite straightforward and it's just I've been an investor now for uh, four decades which is uh, uncomfortable to admit Mm. Uh, but uh, the one thing that keeps coming back to me is you know just the importance of understanding what the key structural headwinds are the areas to avoid, if you like, and the key structural tailwinds, you know, where you want to basically make sure that your portfolios have a heavy bias. And we go back to the, well, actually the 1970s, really there was one key insight in equities, and that is that you had to be very long Japanese equities, which uh, uh, ultimately became more than 40% of the global equity index. And if you got that one decision right within equities, you know, obviously you did incredibly well. And there are other examples, you know, over different decades. So standing back in a way is very, very important because increasingly market participants have become, you know, more and more short term. So how do you get an information advantage? Well, I think you step back, you can take a long view, uh, but then how do you go about taking that long view? Uh, And we believe that this approach basically makes a lot of sense. So, Hill, there's various themes in your excellent piece, The Road to 2030. The first one that I'm looking at now is technological disruption. And if anything has really come to the fore over the last year, it's been the rise of technology, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. Maybe you want to give us a quick update on your Road to 2030 technological disruption theme. Yeah, thanks, Lindsay. I think, you know, just like Philip was talking about, getting one big thing right in many market cycles. You know, in the last 10 to 20 years, arguably the most important thing to get right was technology. We've had an upswing in large cap tech companies now for two decades. They've been a beneficiary of the digital economy, which is based on, you know, scalable intangible assets. And they also benefit from a permissive antitrust environment. And, you know, these were trends that were foreseeable many years ago which is why we like the Peter Drucker point about um, anticipating the future that's already happened. You know, today we know societies are committing uh, to moving to net zero. The future has in some sense already happened. The question is how we allocate for it. But what I want to do is actually take a step back 
and just talk about the role of thematic investing in general, Lindsay, if, if I may. Please. You know, thematic investing is actually as old as the investing profession itself, but I don't think it's been particularly central to the asset allocation of many institutional investors. The arguments against it have been many. You know, first, thematic investing is basically just momentum investing in disguise. You know, second, thematic investing is fine for a bit of top-down speculation, but ultimately, you need to pick individual stocks. You know, thematic investors pick too many themes. They tend to over-diversify. That's one criticism. And finally, and probably most cynically, thematic investing is just about marketing and sales. It's, it's entertainment and not inside. Mm. And I think some of this is true if done badly and cynically, thematic investing is not particularly useful for an allocator. I think in recent years, there's been a rethink. You know, as Philip says, we think themes give an information advantage. The investment industry has become, you know, quite short term. And this has been compounded by, you know, I'm sure you, you've seen this in your life, the exponential increase in the volume of information investment analysts are processing these days. Yes. So we wanted to take a step back and say, you know, what matters here? And uh, you know, what matters can matter for a really long time in markets. It's such a refreshing theme, actually, taking a step back rather than trying to uh, absorb everything and take everything into your portfolio and uh, into your thought process and your investment equation. So I'm enjoying this already. There are other themes as well. We've got the rise of China. We've got demographics. And I think, Philip, that those two things go together because we've seen what's happened to Japan with an aging population. Maybe the same thing is happening in China. And to me, demographics, if you can understand understand that and you can process it, then that is a very, very big step to a long-term future investment equation. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Lindsay. And uh, and Japan is a great example of how, after the extraordinary boom uh, in, the, in, the, in the 1980s, how Japan then basically, with its aging population, the growth rate reduced significantly. And that was great if you're a bond investor, and the yen strengthened too, but obviously not so good if you're an equity investor. So really understanding demographic dynamics was, was incredibly important uh, there. It's also been important in the sense that uh, you know, inflation has continued to surprise on the low side. So many uh, market participants really have not fully understood the role of demographics, i.e. weakening demographics in the US and Europe in particular, and how that basically has resulted in ever more financialization on the one hand, i.e. which relates to the one of the other five themes, debt. So massive buildups in debt, uh, simply because basically growth was just simply not delivering and, uh, and that underpinned financialization. And you mentioned China, uh, yes, I mean, we think that our analysis as part of this research process suggests to us that, you know, China is going to become another Japan. But that's probably a, a problem for the 2030s rather than the 2020s. In the 2020s, China, particularly with its large rural population, you know, still has uh, plenty of scope to put people to work uh, in more productive jobs. And if you cycle around to the U.S., the U.S. has been through a phase of poorer, uh, deteriorating demographics and deleveraging. Over the 2020s, you know, by and large, that is going to ease somewhat. It'd still be a problem longer term, but it's going to ease somewhat, which might well usher in a period of higher inflation. So again, extremely relevant to understand these slow-moving but very powerful underlying structural forces. 
Debt is one of the themes of the road to 2030 as well, Sahil. So I want to talk about it now because ever since I've been in the financial markets, which has been probably as long as Philip has, and to my detriment. But the point is that everyone says, well, we can't sustain this debt. This deficit is going to uh, bring down the country and the markets and everything else. But debt seems to be building all the time, and yet it's sustainable. What about debt? What is your take on debt on the road to 2030? I'm going to let Philip take this one, Lindsay. Philip, over to you. Well, I think that, I mean, governments have been more and more imaginative about basically using financial uh, repression to sort of allow themselves to build up debt levels that uh, would have been unconscionable, you know, historically in periods other than wars. And there are a number of ways that you can actually deal with a debt problem. You know, inflation is is the normal way out. You inflate your uh, liabilities away. Uh, but it's been very difficult to actually generate enough inflation to do that in recent years because of the sheer power of the deflationary forces at work with China obviously coming in and adding sort of, you know, additional competitiveness into sort of global trading system and, you know, reducing the price of things as, you know, we see, you know, the kind of things that we actually use on a day-to-day basis have become much cheaper. But what you do, I mean, there are other ways in the sense that uh, you can restructure you can restructure your debts and uh, uh, step away from some of them. Uh, but it's going to be a very major issue over the next couple of decades. I think at the moment, uh, there is a belief that modern monetary theory is going to sort of present uh, the answer. Uh, and it may well present the answer on a medium term basis. But it remains to be seen whether that's going to be a sort of credible response on a longer term basis. So, Hill, I'm going to have to pin you down now on climate change, which is another one of the themes, because I know that you have been very progressive at 91 with various colleagues that I've spoken to over the last couple of years, and you've really embraced the the problem of climate change. So how important is that to you in the 2030 project? It's hugely important. And, you know, it's, it's become really clear, I think, in the last 12 months that all our societies are undertaking moonshot projects to try to decarbonize and get to so-called net zero. And, you know, at the moment, I'm looking through a a project on on net zero in Europe. And just the sheer capacity that has to be built is very, very striking in order to deliver net zero uh, emissions targets. I mean, the way we thought about it for the road to 2030 is, you know, you've got the physical risks, the risks to the planet from now until 2030, which are mainly extreme weather events. The tail risks go beyond 2030. And these are some of the more apocalyptic uh, scenarios that people have, have forecasted involving you know, rising sea levels and so on. Um, and then crucially for our, our investments, I think it's transition risks. This is the risk that um, policy driven by societies and government uh, will start to make businesses uh, change and become more sustainable. You know, and at the moment, I think most societies, are, most advanced economies are now hitched on to net zero targets. You know, we saw China, Japan and South Korea announce net zero targets within weeks of each other in Q4 last year. And so the question is, what's going to happen um, and how quickly it's going to happen? But it's clearly very relevant for the investment opportunity set that we look at. How important is the Biden administration to the climate change momentum, Sahil, with a brief comment, if you would? It's hugely important. Biden is setting up a climate office and he's starting to you know, legislate from the EPA. And there will be many, many more uh, policy shifts over the coming year. And I would also say don't underestimate the amount of uh, climate stimulus that's gone into, uh, you know, climate provisions rather that have gone into um, the, the past stimulus package in December 
and the upcoming stimulus package as well. Philip, let's wrap this up if we can. It's in a very ambitious project that you've got going on here, the Road to 2030. It's obviously to do with educating investors, but also to making money. Why did you start this? And what is your ultimate goal when you, when you look at this project? Well, I think we've always had a focus on structural thematic change within 91. Uh, it's in our DNA, but we've tended to do the research, but we haven't actually built a framework, uh, the framework that you can see here, simply because um, in common with a lot of other thematic research, you know, there isn't a clear hierarchy. The relationships between the, the structural themes is complex, you know, uh, and we decided that um, it would be helpful to, to try and actually bring order to this uh, analysis um, and to try and actually see the wood for the trees. Uh, and hence, you can see, obviously, there's a mind map at the centre of the project. It encapsulates our primary themes, the overarching themes, uh, secondary and tertiary themes. Uh, and I think that's, to my mind, this is one of the best ways to actually um, sort of try and see the whole picture uh, in a way that uh, I, I'm not aware has been done in the past. Certainly, we, we, we haven't approached it this way. So we've done a lot of this work, but we haven't actually had a framework. Uh, and I think once you get a framework, that's incredibly powerful because things start to fit together. You be, it becomes much clearer about the relationships between individuals uh, and um, uh, uh, multiple um, structure, structural drivers. So the clue is in the name, Mind Map. Uh, it's a map yes. uh, to help us uh, focus and organize our research. Uh, and we're investment managers. So we're, this is not some kind of, you know, uh, sort of disembodied intellectual exercise. Uh, this is about identifying areas of undiscounted change and making sure that they're uh, reflected adequately in our portfolios. And very finally, Sahil, this is obviously something that is a dynamic and fluid process. So the road to 2030 obviously is going to change. I mean, you're going to have to change direction occasionally because of the events that occur almost every single day. Areas where change will be seen are, are most likely to be seen in the scenarios because the scenarios you know, are a way of making disagreements productive. So if you see... You know, for our China scenario, in the first uh, bit is China uh, takes over the economic uh, mantle from the U.S. And the second is more cooperation and competition as it is today. And the third is, you know, the US, China stumbles, whereas the U.S. moves on. I think trying to adapt what we're seeing in the news and, you know, from, from our research into those scenarios uh, is very sensible. We have to keep, um, you know making sure that we, we, uh, we reflect our, our views of the day. So I think that's where you will see the, the most changes. Um, the framework is very adaptable. Um, and uh, the full project, you know, mind map and all, uh, can be found at www.91.com uh, slash road to 2030. Uh, so, you know, check it out. I'm sure we will. Sahil, thank you very much for your time. That's Sahil Matani, who is an investment strategist at 91 in London, joined by his colleague Philip Saunders, a portfolio manager at the same institution. And just to reiterate, go to 91.com forward slash road to 2030.